Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities. Hi, I'm Matt Sleppin, a longtime member of ULI and one of its foundation governors. I founded Terra Search Partners, a real estate-focused recruiting firm, about 10 years ago. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to speak with Alicia Glenn, the deputy mayor of New York City. Alicia has a huge portfolio under an ambitious mayor, which includes urban development generally, including the plan to build a new generation of 200,000 affordable housing units by 2025, growing and diversifying New York's economy, investing in emerging industries, and helping in jobs creation. This is a big job. Prior to joining the de Blasio administration, she led the Goldman Sachs Urban Investment Group for over 10 years. Alicia is an attorney and a lifelong New Yorker. We spoke about her passion for New York, her work in the public and private sectors, and the challenges and opportunity of development for New York City with a New York developer coming into the White House. I hope you enjoy the conversation. First, for our listeners, give me the elevator speech on your background. You grew up in New York. You went to Amherst and Columbia Law School. Then kind of walk us through the pathway, and then we'll dig in a little bit. Sure. So I mean, I'm a native New Yorker, and I did manage to get out of Dodge for college. But when I came back, my first job out of college was, again, really back being involved in New York City in government and sort of in making sure that New York would be a better place. I worked for then um, borough president David Dinkins, who had then was in the process of beginning to decide to run for mayor. And I worked for him when he was a borough president and then his successor um, for a little while before I decided to go to law school. Returning again back to the nest, couldn't get very far, went to Columbia. Um, and then after Columbia Law School, I decided that instead of going the more traditional firm route, I really wanted to do work that was very impactful in terms of addressing some of the biggest challenges facing low-income New Yorkers. And I went to work at Legal Services um, in Brooklyn, where I represented families and individual cases, often around their housing issues or losing benefits, but also working with neighborhoods and tenant groups to really think through how they could have an impact on the buildings they lived in and in the neighborhood more generally. So I did that work for about three years, three and a half years, and then thought that it was great working on individual cases and individual blocks. But what I was really interested, I think, in the long run was how do you do that work at scale um, and how do you begin to be in a place where you can be in charge either of money or agencies or really be a player in some respects at a, at a broader scale. Um, and that was really the, the big change in my life was to learn how to be more on the finance side and the government side of the equation so that we could really think about building neighborhoods and building housing and building the future and being part of that side of the equation. So then I wound up working at a law firm for a while, a couple of law firms, learning some basics about how deals are put together. Um, and then was ultimately asked to join city government again, where I got an opportunity to work at the housing agency um, and wound up, one of the great things about government, that you get to move up the move up the food chain pretty quickly right. when you're young. I wound up running all the development and housing finance programs for the city, working on low-income housing, but also, you know, 
now famous projects like, you know, Trump condominium deals and really seeing the whole spectrum of the housing universe from a finance um, and regulatory perspective was really great, great opportunity for me. I worked there for three and a half years. And I think, you know, one of the little known things about the Giuliani administration is that we really did do a lot of interesting work in the housing field, um, maybe partially because it wasn't so much on his radar screen. So there are a lot of talented people. We came up with a lot of great programs there. Uh-huh. Um, and then when Michael Bloomberg was elected, I chose to go to the private sector. It felt like the right thing to do at that point to go and see if I could bring some of the things that I had learned about being both in the nonprofit world and in government um, to take it to sort of inside the belly of the beast to go to where Wall Street and capital live um, and to see how we could use capital markets and institutions like a Goldman Sachs to really construct important public-private partnerships and use capital in a thoughtful way to help make cities better and, and really give people opportunity. Um, I wound up staying there probably longer than I expected, over a decade, where I ran the Urban Investment Group and several other sort of um, related businesses over time, um, which was fantastic. I really got to work on great projects, um, do some of the most innovative things on Wall Street, started a social impact business there, which was the first one of any sizable institution to do social impact investing. Got to live through the transition from being an investment bank to a commercial bank. Really, it was a fascinating time to be working um, on Wall Street as so much disruption was occurring, but also having incredible resources, both actual capital and human capital, to devote to these problems and get to work across the country, which was a great, great honor to see other cities and what they were doing to confront some of these issues. And then I was minding my own business, and Bill de Blasio became mayor and asked me to join his administration as a deputy mayor. So it's been a, shall we say, non-linear path to where I am, um, but all connected by my love of cities and city building and, and seeing cities as a place where innovation and opportunity um, really come together. I want to come back to each of the things you talked about because they all fit together and they're all important to us. But let's drill down a little bit on your experience at Goldman Sachs. So you said over 12 years there. And did you start the Urban Investment Group or was it already existing? And Yeah, I mean, the Urban Investment Group was in its planning and sort of nascent stages um, when I got there. They were sort of in the research R&D stage, I guess. And then when I got there, it really began to take some shape in the various business lines and sort of the investment thesis was put into action. So um, I worked as part of a small team for a couple of years. And then um, in 2005, I took over the business. Um, And so I ran it from 2005 to when I joined the de Blasio administration um, on New Year's Day 2014. Uh-huh. And again, the business itself evolved. It had both a real estate component um, where we were investing in real estate projects in underserved communities across the country, um, really doing some very cool mixed-use, mixed-income projects with some great developers, a lot here in New York, but also around the country. We had a private equity business that was investing in companies that were owned or operated by minorities. We then um, did wind up starting a a real social impact business where um, Goldman Sachs was the first um, American financial institution to uh, do a social impact bond and really continually just thinking about the ways in which capital markets 
could be used to address social problems, you know, whether through debt facilities, direct equity. When we became a bank, we had a very unique, I think, community development practice that was not what a lot of the other banks were doing. Um, and then layering on the social impact business, which then ultimately led the firm to start raising a fund um, for that kind of work. So it was always evolving and changing. And um, I give the firm a lot of credit for giving me and my team a lot of leeway to, to be experimental, but also pushing us to you know, drive decent returns. Talk about this. So you use the word returns. Talk about that within the context of that business. And do these take lower returns? Do they take lower returns from investors who are willing to go there? Lower returns for Goldman or market returns? Kind of help help me understand that. Well, I think it's a range. I think, you know, it's very hard to lump all of these activities into one um, way to think about returns. I think we used to think a little bit about a mission money matrix or, you know, trying to, you know, if you're really driving hard on a mission that's supposed to deliver certain kinds of outputs, like obviously the lower the income families that you're serving in an apartment building, for example, the lower the rents are, there's only so much return you can make, period, right? Because the rents are, are restricted. And so those returns tend to be fairly steady and lower, but they're very, you know, they're very riskless investments in many ways. So a lot of banks do a lot of, you know, low income housing, whether through tax credits or lending. And those are, are, are sort of bread and butter good deals for banks. We were always more interested in doing things that were a little more edgy programs where we were really doing a lot of mix of incomes and mixing um, retail and community facilities and thinking through the asset class more as the city and not just an individual building. And different pieces of those deals could generate, you know, had different return risk profiles. So, you know, if you're investing in middle income housing where there is no government support, you know, you, you would be seeking higher returns, but it could often be offset by having a low income component in the building that did have some government support. Or if we were doing retail in a lot of underserved neighborhoods, certainly mm -hmm. the business case for having higher quality retail in these neighborhoods could lead you to make, you know, certainly market rate returns, but you're also driving an impact by putting retail into neighborhoods that are deeply underserved and or working with nonprofits and government to make sure that the kids in the neighborhood have the opportunity to work in those stores. You know, we were always trying to link sort of thinking through how you make a healthier neighborhood in general, whether it was a workforce piece or the mix of uses, um, and trying to blend that all into returns. And and so depending on the profile, we would have to size the returns accordingly. It's a, it's a true portfolio approach. So you talked about yourself as a lefty liberal, liberal lefty. And so... <laughs> And you were in the belly of the beast. So mm -hmm. what was that like? Talk about kind of skills you learned, but then perspective that you learned. Talk about toolkit that, that developed for you that you're going to bring to your new job, the job you have mm -hmm. now. But what, what was it like being in the belly of the beast doing those things? Well, I mean, I think, you know, one of the great things, and I've always said this about Goldman in particular, is it's a place that really rewards um, people who are smart and creative and determined. And they are a firm that encourages risk-taking. And if, and if you can explain what it is you're trying to get done and then deliver or surpass what you said you were going to be able to deliver – you know, it's an extraordinarily welcoming environment. And so I, early on, set out to convince the leadership of the firm that there was 
a real compelling business case to deploy capital to address these problems, but that also at the end of the day, you know, big financial institutions need to be part of the broader solution. And if you're not part of the broader solution to a lot of what is going on, you know, globally, but certainly in the United States, and we obviously saw that during the financial crisis, that, you know, they were going to continue to be, you know, potentially at risk of things that might actually perhaps undermine their business model and that it was important for us to be proactive around these issues, that there are a lot of smart people who can think through how capitalism and progressive values can coexist. There are a lot of folks at Goldman Sachs with a rich history at that firm of, of people being extraordinarily thoughtful and connected to trying to solve public sector problems and serving in the government. Uh -huh. So I think it's a really unique place. And I learned a lot about how to talk to people on the street about why these things matter and also to convince people to allocate capital. And we were very successful in meeting or exceeding the return expectations um, that we had set for ourselves. And I think, you know, in many respects became you know, a little bit of a model for other financial institutions as they start to think through what their platforms were, particularly beyond what they're required to do by law. Um, you know, I think, you know, a lot of banks, you know, there's always been for commercial banks, you know, obligations to do community development work. We wanted to see it not just as an obligation, but as a positive part of any, you know, set of business lines that a major financial institution would be in, and that there were long-term benefits for doing that kind of work. Then that reputational question that you raised changed considerably. So in the pre-global financial crisis, the way you describe Goldman to the outside world is the way I looked at Goldman Sachs as well. And then you became emblematic of the problem, even though you were doing your good work. So how did that change after the global financial crisis, both internally and for you? And how did you how did that help manage reputation post financial crisis? Well, again, I mean, I think you know, enormous institutions like Goldman Sachs have multiple divisions and a gazillion different business lines. And so I think uh -huh. some of the challenges that the firm faced with respect to the mortgage crisis were, I have to tell you, like a million miles away from what I was doing in the merchant sure. bank. You know, we mm -hmm. were not traders. I mean, we certainly weren't structuring these complex, you know, facilities and instruments that became the subject of so much scrutiny. I think, you know, we on our side of the house, continued to press the case that it was important for the firm to stay engaged and trying to be problem solvers and not just, you know, take those sort of reputational challenges and, you know, bury our head in the sand, but to continue to do our work and to build our business. Um, and so we were able to successfully convince the firm to do even more. That was when we also launched the 10,000 Small Businesses Program, which I ran to really talk about how we could get more into the direct job creation business and trying to support small businesses. It's when, again, we launched the first social impact um, part of the business, um, began to get much more involved in a broader array of products because I think we all recognize that there was a real, you know, gap between public perception and anger around what was going on on the street and what could be positive results of, of people deploying capital to solve problems. I mean, there were some dark days, right? It wasn't fun, yep. you know, to have people, when you said, oh, what do you do for a living? And you said, I work at Goldman Sachs. You know, I think for many of us on the street, that wasn't so, so much fun. Um, but, you know, not everything is about fun. Um, you also have to get up and do your work. And the people I worked with and the leadership of the firm were incredibly honorable and decided to double down, not pull back, we actually began to allocate more capital to my businesses. Um, and again, it continues to do amazing work to this day. 
so in the midst of that and with those accomplishments and coming out of the global financial crisis, then you went back to the public sector. So talk about that transition and the reasons for leaving Goldman and then the opportunities with the de Blasio administration. Well, I mean, again, all you know, so much of the work I've been doing at Goldman were these, you know, again, highly structured and very complex deals that continue to be very involved with the public sector. So, for example, the city bike deal, you know, was Goldman Sachs really financed and this continues to be really the lead financer of the only large-scale bike-sharing program in the world that doesn't have public subsidy in it. Um, but it's a big, big, big public-private partnership because obviously the city of New York um, regulates um, their their activity and grants them the opportunity to even run the bike system. So I had been spending time, whether it was on bike share or on these very interesting large-scale redevelopment projects in the city, um, issues around how you how you finance. Um, advanced manufacturing facilities in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. I mean, my life, or a large part of my life, was still very much stuck into what were the city's priorities and how do you how do you leverage off each other in a way to really do things more effectively and at scale. So on one hand, it seems like a radical departure to go from you know running these businesses at Goldman Sachs and you know swanning around and you know working at a big fancy Wall Street institution, but in fact it felt quite natural in many respects to sort of switch my seat at the table. Um, I mean, obviously, the job that I was offered is is just, at, you know, like a hundred times bigger in many respects, but um, it felt natural for me to do this work and to come back to the public sector because I had been involved in these issues just from the other side of it and now felt even more equipped to be able to help the mayor and his team think through how to address these challenges because I had been in a bank and I understood how bankers thought, how investors thought, how lenders thought, how sort of the both the good and the bad of, of fearing regulation, fearing cooperation, but also very much wanting to be cooperative and, and working with government. So I, I really felt strongly that I would be able to bring some of those skills and having learned how to talk that talk and all those acronyms, you know, and all that stuff that I think a lot of people in the public sector, you know, don't really understand I knew that I would be, I think, a real asset to Mayor de Blasio because it's incredibly important when you're the mayor of the city of New York to understand how financial services work, how deals are structured, and how there can be amazing collaborations that can help drive a progressive agenda. And I think that's counterintuitive to a lot of folks, but it's absolutely true. Absolutely. It makes makes total sense to me. So when you made the move, I wasn't surprised by that. So... Bringing those tools to government when you re-arrived at government, because you've been there 15 years before, um, <laughs> yeah. 12. So what did your new perspective bring in terms of attacking these problems? And then how do you pick your spots? I think in terms of addressing these problems, I, you know, one of the first things we did was put together the most comprehensive housing plan ever of, you know, any any city in America and perhaps the world really looking at the housing market um, in a very holistic way and devising a strategy to drive production and and preservation um, really, again, at a scale nobody's even thought about. And I think having been on the other side of the table and been both an investor and a lender and a joint venture partner, you know, I was keenly, keenly focused and aware of how important it was to have all the different tools in my toolbox, whether they were land use and zoning tools, financing tools, the tax tools that I knew I was going to need because tax drives so much um, of how people structure deals and get comfortable with risk. 
really understanding how I had to get a really broad set of stakeholders involved. And then also understanding, having been on Wall Street and being part of a big corporation in New York, how important it is um, to have a healthy housing market in terms of our workforce and how the folks who work on Wall Street and the folks who we finance when we were at Wall Street um, for the future of the city of New York needed to rebalance and create a healthy housing market. And just my way of thinking about it and the interconnection between the health of the economy writ large at the city and our need to really do something about this very, very um, dysfunctional housing market in New York, I think was a really um, no other, I had never thought about it that way in my first stint or second stint in government. But I think brought a credibility to it that allowed the mayor to bring together the broadest coalition of people from Wall Street to advocates to, you know, uh, policy people all together to really embrace, again, what is this extraordinary, you know, mission that we're on. Uh, now we're three years into it of just aggressively um, and constantly attacking our housing problems. So I think that was a really good example of using the skills and the relationships that I had built while I was at Goldman to help the mayor get the coalition he needed in order to advance the agenda. And, and and that it was really an agenda for all New Yorkers. It wasn't just about affordable housing. It was really about who we are as a city and where we're going. So I think that's a terrific example of, of how I use the skills that I had um, in a very concrete way early on in the administration. And how much of the fight is around gentrification and nimbyism versus winners and losers of who gets to do these things? Well, I think, you know, it's a great issue of our time for cities that are, you know, we're very prosperous, but the prosperity has been very uneven. And I think, obviously, folks out on the coast feel this as well. Um, you know, the real challenge is how can we stay the cities that we are, that are diverse and funky and fair and inclusive at a time when, you know, prices are rising so dramatically and yet a huge swath of our population, their incomes are not rising commensurately. So how do we take, you know, the big challenge used to be, oh, my God, how do we overcome urban decay and people leaving the cities? Now we have the opposite problem, right, which is everybody yep. wants to be here. So how do we, you know, not only not throw the baby out with the bathwater, but also how do we protect the families in the neighborhoods who were here when it wasn't so fabulous? Um, and we have a real obligation to think through those issues. And I think, you know, gentrification is the, the buzzword of our time. And how do we, again, be pro-growth, which we need to be in order to be a globally competitive city and to continue to address our affordable housing crisis, but also have a dialogue with communities so that they're not scared of change and growth. And, and so that's why one of the most important things we did here was pass the most aggressive mandatory inclusionary housing program in the country so that you could say to communities, look, we have to be a denser city. We want to be a pro-growth city. We always have been. We're the city of immigrants. We're the city of of all people. Um, and that means we're going to have to build and build and build. You know, we're not San Francisco. We are a pro-growth uh, building city. But we want you to know that as we build in your communities, those communities are going to have affordable housing. It's not going to be if or when. It's it must. And, you know, these are the things we're going to do. And we're going to make investments in your communities. But change is hard. And, you know, the market is aggressive. And I think we're all living through a time of uncertainty, which means it's all the more important that the public sector lead on these issues and demand mixed income housing, demand that we put the amenities that families need and, and invest in those neighborhoods so that we don't we don't screw it up because we could screw it up. We could really screw it up in cities around 
um, the country and around the world are, are looking at what's happening in New York and, and seeing if we can figure out a way to do equitable growth that allows us to continue to be so fabulous. So talk about not wanting to screw it up. Talk about projects that in the past, because urban development projects have some history of we make big, big bets and big swaths of land, and then we develop something that 30 years later you want to blow up or tear down. <laughs> So well, hopefully you... we're not blowing anything up. <laughs> I hope not, too. Hopefully, hopefully that's not the world we live in. I mean, I mean, look, there's urban design issues that fall into that category, right? I mean, I think right. a lot of people might look at you know, some of the large-scale developments of the 60s and 70s where we were very focused on super blocks and tower and the park. And I think most, most urbanists today would look at that and, and say that is not great design. It also creates a sense of otherness. You know, we're, we've all become much more focused on a more walkable urbanity, a, a street wall that engages people, that allows neighborhoods and communities to come together. So I think there's urban design mistakes. I mean, I don't want to get in trouble for saying this because a lot of my friends live there, but you know, I don't think people think Roosevelt Island is exactly, you know, the most beautiful large-scale development ever in the history of the world, right? If we could do it all mm -hmm. over again, we might do it a little differently. You know, I think people might say that about Battery Park City to some extent as well also. Um, look at any – it's easy to always, you know, be a Monday morning quarterback. What we're really focused on is the absolute commitment to, as we do large-scale development, that the density is connected to real infrastructure investments, that building typologies have character and are different. That's what I think of as like a backgammon effect, if you will. I look at the, you know, Queens waterfront where we've just instituted new design guidelines to sort of pay tribute to the sort of uneven, funky nature of a former manufacturing district. And, you know, not just saying we'd like to see those businesses survive, but requiring developers to maintain manufacturing the base of the building and recognizing that we can do it all now, right? We don't have noxious manufacturing uses and we can build different kinds of buildings that have unevenness that create, again, a sense of urbanism and place that we're not just looking out at Shanghai, for example, where I was last year and just seeing, you know, mile after mile after mile of sort of plain vanilla tall residential buildings. To me, that, that, can be, that can be quite soul crushing. And part yep. of why people come to New York is it's soul uplifting, right? That's what it's uh -huh. about, walking down the street. So I think we've learned a lot. I think we're, by demanding funky design, a mix of uses, and requiring permanent affordable housing in these neighborhoods that are rapidly growing, we can lay a real blueprint for the future of New York. And so talk about some of the, so talk about soul uplifting, talk about your love of New York and what drives you towards this. <laughs> you think I love New York? Does that come through a little bit? <laughs> I think it comes through and maybe you like you live in the same zip code that you grew I up do. in. I do. I know. It's either pathetic or it's heroic. I'm not sure which it is, but I am. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I do. I love the city in a way that's hard to describe. I think, you know, it's funny how few people who live in New York City are actually like, well, it's not fair. There are a lot of true born and bred New Yorkers, obviously. There are probably millions of us. But it's funny. It's rarer than you think how many people um, who are in positions of some luck to influence the city are actually, you know, 100% New York born. But, you know, I love it. I mean, I think... You know, I, I grew up in a neighborhood that was very much the epicenter of some of these issues where there was public housing on my block. There was 
the great movement toward middle-income housing that came out of the 60s and 70s on my block. There were gorgeous brownstones on my block where you know, families had lived for generations, old Irish and Italian families. There was a tenement building next to my building that was filled with mostly Puerto Rican families, and that building had been um, brought into foreclosure by the city and was managed by the city, and those folks were really struggling with how to get the city to give them basic services. And then I lived in a pretty nice fancy building on Central Park West, except, you know, both my parents worked in the public sector and I lived on Central Park West, you know. Um, and we all went to the same school on that block. Um, and we all went to the same candy store um, and the same dry cleaner. And there was just something extraordinarily uplifting about that degree of racial and economic diversity, you know, in this spectacular place between Central Park and Riverside Park, between, you know, the Hudson River and and the Central Park Zoo. I mean, what an extraordinary place to grow up as a kid. You know, even when your bike was getting stolen, that's okay. It was part of the urban experience, right? Um, and so I think that that guides my work to this day. You know, that's what makes us who we are. You know, it's interesting. I the the words you just used. I don't know that anyone who will listen to the podcast can't totally imagine it either through the times they've been in New York, or the hundreds of movies or Woody Allen they've seen over their lives. We all feel like <laughs> yeah, there New was Yorkers. a Woody Allen. Yeah, there was a Woody Allen quality to it. They all take place in about ten block radius from where I grew up. It's true. Totally true. So now there's a New Yorker will be in the White House and a New Yorker who has developer as the ostensible business title. So what does that mean for New York going forward? And what are the challenges and opportunities associated with that? Well, I think quite honestly, we're, we're, we're trying to sort that out. I mean, you know, I don't think it will surprise anybody to know that wasn't the result that certainly I would have wanted to see, or certainly the mayor and the rest of the administration or the city. The city, you know, 90% voted uh, Democratic. So I think we're not, we don't know exactly what it means. We know there are certain things that are true. Um, you know, we're not going to let that sort of rhetoric and the behavior around certainly immigrants and treating women the way he appears to suggest that, that women might be okay to treat. Those are certainly values that New Yorkers are going to reject. And if there are policy implications where any of those um, beliefs get to be operationalized, you know, certainly if there's anything to do with, you know, trying to separate, you know, undocumented, you know, mothers from their American children, we're simply not going to tolerate that kind of behavior because that's not who we are as a city. We're never going to be a city which will allow sexism to be entrenched or um, anti-Muslim behavior or um, anti-LGBT behavior. So, you know, there's a whole lot of things we're worried about because it's hard not to be when you actually listen to this stuff. By the same token, it's also clear to me, at least, that there is something about him being a New Yorker and being a builder um, that I yes. hope that we can tap into, that we certainly have an enormous infrastructure crisis in this city. We have $17 billion of unmet needs just to stay in a state of good repair, forget making the kinds of smart infrastructure investments we need to be making to stay competitive and, and healthy. Um, I think there's an enormous instinct he has and sort of also a love of the city. It's hard to exactly capture what that is, but I, I think you can feel that um, in him. And obviously he raised his children here. Um, so I think that there is some hope amongst us that there'll be ways in which we can connect and tap into what could be positive and at the same time be very, very clear that that sort of rhetoric and truly what I would call anti-American behavior and certainly anti-New York City behavior, you know, it's just not cool. 
it's not cool. Um, and we will resist and we will continue to agitate for progressive, inclusive cities, which, by the way, you know, his family got off the boat also. You know, everybody's family got off a boat except, you know, the Native Americans who, you know, didn't get to receive us as lovingly as we continue to receive <laughs> right. everybody else. Absolutely true. I, there, I keep searching for silver lining and or maybe golden golden lining, <laughs> but but it may be around. You know, he does love deals. He loves buildings. Mm -hmm. He loves building things. He loves mm -hmm. places, maybe. So yep, yep. I think there's those opportunities around yep. the types of projects you've been talking about throughout the conversation. Yeah, I think it's also a great, I think the other, I don't know if silver lining's the right word, but I think it does reinforce the importance of cities and what, you know, mayors can do and how, you know, most, a lot of cool stuff happens in cities, right, across the city, or I mean, across the country. So, I mean, I think if we can continue to prove that there are programs and ideas and innovations that can be done at the municipal level, you know, it sort of makes me even more inspired. You know, I get up every morning and I'm like, wow, I got to work 10 times harder today because I got to get my ferry service up. I got to get my women's programs going. I've got to get my advanced manufacturing facility up. I've got to work on the fashion, you know, initiatives we're doing because all of these things are happening in cities. It's where great ideas are occurring and great prosperity can be generated and will continue to be generated. I mean, 70% of the GDP of America is generated out of big cities. So this is where wealth creation is. This is where opportunity is. So I think we're all excited about doubling down on our commitment to making cities even better. It's a great point. And I didn't want to get too stuck on politics, but it's hard not to. But it's an interesting dynamic here because Trump's coalition was largely non-city coalition, and the cities tend to vote Democratic, as we know. But all of these drivers are in urban areas. So how do you take these exciting things in urban areas from your standpoint and bring them to the Trump coalition, the people in the red states who don't have those? But they do. There are urban areas, right? They're great mm -hmm. urban areas. So they're small mm -hmm. cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a great challenge, certainly for the Democratic Party writ large, huh. is how do we, you know, how do we start talking to those folks who clearly feel pretty disenfranchised? Um, and I do think there is a little bit of a, you know, we don't like the metropolitan elite thing going on. So I think, you know, one of the things that we need to constantly do is try to understand where this anger slash real sense of, of, lack of focus on their issues comes from and, and not demonize them because that's not going to get us anywhere, but to try to understand if there are strategies, you know, that we need to be employing to talk to folks and to understand what are complicated, large scale shifts in the economy, where, again, rural and suburban America is changing dramatically. You know, and it's sort of the reverse of what happened in the 60s, right, where people were talking about, are we writing off America's cities, right? Are, are, are American cities dead? And, and sort of the, and the politics around that was really interesting. Now, we can't just write off rural and, and small cities. We have to come up with strategies for them. I'm an optimist, and so it feels like the needle has moved in a meaningful way, but if you double 5%, you get to 10%, and that's exactly. way, way too low. <laughs> that's I was always very good at math, but you're right. Five times two is not like five and a zero after it. Yeah, you got it. So do you think that um, some of the things we've talked about in this conversation are about, say, your passion for, for New York, your passion for urban areas, is it maybe 
this has something to do with being a woman and bring a broader perspective and passion versus just going after closing the deal. Mm. Is that, am I onto something there or yeah, no? Is that just, uh, no, I'm going to think about that. Cause I think, I think you raise an interesting question. I think a lot of people think, is there something about the way women think about problem solving and, and where they're going and what they care about and what they're passionate about? I do think that there is a connection for me, at least, about when I look at cities and I see them operating as an entire organism, if you will, that, you know, I'm not just a guy who's financing buying a hotel, right? They're not widgets. These are not just things right. you're trading. These are very much you know, live pieces of a much bigger puzzle. So if you're going to be building like I am now, the first, hopefully we're going to bring hotels to Governor's Island. Well, that's okay. But I mean, so what? A hotel on Governor's Island can only be part of a much broader effort to create a smart workforce, to have arts and culture there, to make sure that the kids who are going to school there have access to, you know, the training program that could get them to be the chef at that hotel. I do think that women think in a more connective tissue way, and then that definitely translates into my love of the built environment, which then I think if you love interconnected built environments, you got to be an urbanist. And if you're going to be an urbanist, there's no better city in the world than New York City to be an urbanist in. And we're tight, we're dense, we're compact, we're creative, we're funky. And I, I do think that some female thinking is reflected in the way I've been trying to lay out what I hope the city will look like, you know, in the next 20, 30, 50 years. Absolutely. Hey, uh, one comment is okay. yep. you didn't want to yeah. use the word curate, so I want to just thank you for that. <laughs> well, it's those are the two words now, right? Right. Everybody's, everybody's curating and everything is bespoke. If I hear <laughs> one more bespoke problem or bespoke wood floors, I'm going to have to blow my brains out. So thank you for not making me say anything about bespoke projects. I got it. I totally agree. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Leading Voices with ULI podcast, hosted by the Urban Land Institute. To learn more about ULI's leadership network or to join ULI as a member, please visit uli.org.